This is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. After your faith has let you down. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Osland, and today I want to share with you uh, the general public something that I just recorded and shared with uh, Patreon supporters. Now we've got about uh, a little over 200 people on Patreon who are supporting us. There's close to, I don't know, five, 6,000 who listen to Infants on Thrones uh, that aren't uh, supporting us on Patreon. But this is a series that, that um, we've started doing and, and maybe a different approach. I don't know. I kind of like it. I, I kind of like the way that this is shaping up. Um, so last week for Patreon supporters, I... I, I've been recording episodes almost weekly, sometimes a couple of times a week, that are like bonus content um, for for our Patreon supporters, and um, also doing some live recordings on Sunday nights. We had maybe four or five uh, join. It, it wasn't a, a big group that joined this last Sunday. Um, but if you're a Patreon supporter, that's something that's interesting to you. Uh, we're going to start doing that on a more regular basis on Sunday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern, uh, recording our conversations. Uh, so we're doing a manual for creating atheists, um, which is a really interesting book. Um, and I, 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 I'm finding my own reaction to it very interesting as, as uh, I, I'm responding to different elements of it anyway. Um, so last week I put some clips on Patreon and then we used those clips for the discussion on Sunday night. I did that again today and I thought, I'm just going to share this with people who aren't on Patreon. One, I'd like you to come to Patreon. Please come to Patreon. Help support what we're doing with the podcast. It really, it's really helpful. It really means a lot. And you will get more uh, valuable content um, as a part of Patreon. So I want to show you a little bit about what that is and what it could feel like with today's episode. And, and these are things that I've been doing over the last month or so, um, sporadically over the last year, really, that, that we've done uh, Patreon for Infants on Thrones. There's, there's a lot of content on there that you have access to um, once you join. Anyway, so uh, that's what you're going to be hearing today. It's all... Uh, aiming towards a live conversation that we're going to have on Sunday night. I'm not sure at this point exactly who all uh, of the other infants are going to be joining or not. Um, I know for sure that Bob won't be able to because he's got uh, guests in town, but I think Tom will be there. Um, Matt might be there. I I think Matt's planning on being there. Uh, Heather was there last week. She may be there this week uh, as well. And... uh, yeah, so, so we'll, we'll see who shows up. I, I haven't heard back from Jake yet. I'd love to have Jake chime in on these things because we're talking about the definition of faith, the definition of atheist, the definition of agnostic. What's the difference between faith and hope? I think we can have some really interesting conversations live, and then I'll turn it into an episode that um, you'll all hear in a month or two. I don't know, how, however long it takes me to get through all the material and get it published. But this is a little behind-the-scenes, lifting-the-curtain sneak peek to some of the sausage making of Infants on Thrones. Hope it's interesting. Uh, some clips from the book, uh, A Manual for Creating Atheists by Peter Borgosian, which is a focus of uh, conversation right now for us. So anyway, that's today's episode. And thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Welcome back to Infant Nursery Hour with your host, Glenn Ostland. It's sharing time. Hey there, Patreon supporters. So this is part two, uh, the next installment in the... uh, It's not really a smackdown. I don't know, maybe it's a smackdown. Just the the book review of A Manual for Creating Atheists. So we'll be recording again this upcoming Sunday. And uh, I've got some clips prepared here going to focus on chapter, I think it's chapter two. I'm not going to try and squeeze two chapters into it. It's a big one. Um, Chapter two works with definitions of faith, atheist, agnostic. Um, There's a word in there called deepities. And what I really want to do, what I really want to record is just 
personal experiences with this stuff and kind of how we're feeling about it now. And, you know, with all the stuff that we do on infants, it's all an exploration. It's not like we've got it figured out and here it is. <laughs> you know, like, Wait, what did you use to think about it? What do you think about it now? That sort of thing. So I'm going to play the first clip here and then um, ask some questions after it that I'll be asking the panel on Sunday and uh, hope that we can generate some good discussion from this. And then, you know, the way I'm going to approach this is I don't think I'll publish any of the discussions that we're recording until I've got it all complete. And I know, you know, and I'm thinking about these discussions as like raw material to be able to create uh, a series of episodes from that that bring in other clips and things like that. But um, it, it, it's kind of weird, I think, doing um, just discussions while we're still trying to figure it out. Anyway, that's what I'm thinking right now. Interesting, not interesting. Who cares? Here's the first clip. As a street epistemologist, you'll find subjects will attempt to evade your help by asserting that every definition of faith offered is incorrect and that you, quote, just don't understand, unquote, what faith really is. When pressed, the faithful will offer vague definitions that are merely transparent attempts to evade criticism or simplistic definitions that intentionally muddy the meaning of faith. All right, so after this first clip, here are the questions that I have that that come to mind for me. First, how do faithful people define faith amongst themselves? And, And specifically, when you were faithful, how did you define it? What did you think that faith was? You know, did you ever have any experiences where you were talking to somebody like this and you had to justify your faith because people were challenging it? Um, and, then, and then some of the words that uh, Borgosian uses in here, uh, did you ever intentionally, you know, he says the word intentionally, did you ever intentionally muddy the meaning of faith because you could just tell that you were being backed into a corner and you didn't want to back allow yourself to be back into a corner so you're like intentionally muddying the definition of faith? I mean, I think that's what he's suggesting there. Did you ever do that? Um, did you know people who did that? Uh, did you see this person who was challenging your faith? Did you see them as somebody who was being helpful? You know, Borgosian talks about it when you're trying to help people. Did, did it feel like help to you? How did you respond uh, when or if someone ever said that they were just trying to help rid you of your foolish insistence on accepting things on faith? Um, just curious. Have a discussion about that. Next clip. More common still are what horseman Daniel Dennett terms deepities. A deepity is a statement that looks profound, but is not. Deepities appear true at one level, but on all other levels are meaningless. Here are some examples of deepities. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11. Faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things. Therefore, if ye have faith, ye hope for things which are not seen, which are true. Alma 32.21 All right. Now, it's always a little bit of a thrill, even as an ex-Mormon, right, to, to hear a book of Mormon scripture, even when it's pronounced Alma instead of Alma. I mean, come on, man. Uh, to hear a scripture quoted like this in a non-Mormon text. But so what do you think about the idea of a deepity? You know, can you think of examples of other deepities? Like I think about, uh, you know, the bumper sticker that says the family that prays together stays together. And a lot of times you get these little memes or couplets or, you know, something that seems profound. Um, that isn't really all that profound, but then there's people who do actually think that it's profound and it becomes really meaningful for them. So, what does it mean when you recognize something as a deepity, but the person that you're talking with doesn't? I mean, what do you do with that? So if you go back to this idea of helping people, that you're, you're altruistically from, from, you know, just like the generousness of your heart, helping people free themselves from their faith, does this seem like a good or effective approach to think of things as deepities. I mean, it seems like there's this chasm of condescension and arrogance that has to be bridged somehow. 
Uh, I don't know that the deepity is really doing it or not, but um, interested to know what you think. So let's have a conversation about deepities. Next clip. The word faith is a very slippery pig. We need to get our hands on it, pin it to the ground, and wrap a blanket around it so that we can have something to latch onto before we finally and permanently subdue it. Two definitions of faith. One, belief without evidence. Belief without, belief evidence. without evidence. Belief without evidence. My definition of faith is that it's a leap over the probabilities. It fills in the gap between what's improbable to make something more probable than not without faith. If one had sufficient evidence to warrant belief in a particular claim, then one wouldn't believe the claim on the basis of faith. Two, pretending to know things you don't know. Pretending, pretending to know things you don't know. You don't know. As a street epistemologist, whenever you hear the word faith, just translate this in your head as pretending to know things you don't know. My faith is beneficial for me. Pretending to know things I don't know is beneficial for me. I have faith in God. I pretend to know things I don't know about God. Life has no meaning without faith. Life has no meaning if I start pretending to know things I don't know. You have faith in science. You pretend to know things you don't know about science. Why should people stop having faith if it helps them get through the day? Why should people stop pretending to know things they don't know if it helps get them through the day? Teach your children to have faith. Teach your children to pretend to know things they don't know. She's having a crisis of faith. She's having a crisis of pretending to know things she doesn't know. Alternatively, she is struck by the fact that she's been pretending to know things she doesn't know. All right, so we've got these two definitions of faith here. I mean, first he talks about faith being a pig in a blanket that we must subdue. That just makes me hungry for a pig in a blanket. You know, like I had these ones that had like pretzel bread wrapped around and the, you know, like hot dog or sausage, whatever was it. That Those are good. Pig in a blanket. Good fall food. Mmm. Take me back to my childhood. Pig in a blanket. Anyway, uh, two definitions of faith here. One, belief without evidence. Interesting. Let's let's explore that a little bit. Belief without evidence. What, well, then, what do you call belief with evidence? Um, is isn't that knowledge? If you've got the evidence, is it still a belief? Is there a difference between belief and knowledge? I don't know. I think I think we could take this one in some interesting directions. What are some things that you believe right now without evidence? What does it really even mean to believe? And what, what's the difference between this? Is one that I have a question about. Just from the nature of doing this podcast and reading comments that people make, um, you know, what, what's the difference between exploring ideas and actually believing them uh, or promoting them or, you know, that sort of thing. So anyway, that's the first definition that he gives, belief without evidence. And then the second one, pretending to know things you don't know. Uh, I, it's a really interesting exercise. I, I do... It, I, I cut out a lot of the examples that he gave, maybe about half of them. He really hammers this one hard, um, pretending to know things you don't know. I I want to explore that word pretending because to to pretend, it almost presupposes intention again, that you know that you're doing it. You're, you know, that you're playing this game of make-believe that you're aware of it. If you don't know it, if you don't know that you're pretending, what is it? Um, and, and I, I just think back to when I was, when, when I was a faithful member of the church, I wouldn't have thought of myself as pretending. Of course I wouldn't. And now do I even think of myself as pretending? I maybe, I don't know. You know, you get this cultural script, you learn it, you learn your dialogue, you learn your lines, you learn your positions, where you're supposed to go, how you're supposed to stand, all these things that you're supposed to do and you just do it. Um, is that pretending? to do it? Or is it just acting? You're, you're doing what's been given to you? I, I kind of have a problem with pretending, but I don't know what a better word would be for it. So I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, and But, you know, pretending to know things you don't know. I, I do think it's a really, really valuable way to think about epistemology in general. And, and I have to keep reminding myself that that's really what 
Peter Bogorzian is is talking about when he's being critical of faith. It's being critical of faith as an epistemology, critical of faith as a way to gain knowledge or to learn, um, and that it's not a reliable way to do that. But but again, it is part of the script that so many of us have just inherited, and so we do it. And you know. And in, in this case, I think a lot of us have broken out of that script, but then what do you do with it? So I don't know. Pretending to know things you don't know. I I remember, this is something that my dad said to me, I'm sure you've heard it before in the church too, like instead of substituting faith with pretending things you don't know, I, I was taught to substitute, every time it says have faith, you could flip that and say fear not. Um, you know, have faith that the Lord is there for you. Fear not that the Lord is there for you. You know, and and I don't know that that is a real response to what Borgosian's saying here. It's not, but I think it it underlies some of the motivations behind pretending to know things that you don't know, pretending to have certainty in things that where you don't really have certainty or claiming certainty, claiming knowledge when you don't really have it. Uh that it's because of how scary it is, how afraid you would otherwise be to know that we're living in um, something that we don't understand, that life is something that's so complex that it's just beyond our ability to fully understand what's going. So we have to just pretend we understand it or claim that we understand it or imagine that we understand it or whatever word you want to use there. So I think this is a really interesting clip. There's a lot here that we can talk about. That's clip number three. All right, next clip. Faith is not hope. The term faith, as the faithful use it in religious contexts, needs to be disambiguated from words such as promise, confidence, trust, and especially hope. Promise, confidence, trust, and hope are not knowledge claims. One can hope for anything or place one's trust in anyone or anything. This is not the same as claiming to know something. To hope for something admits there's a possibility that what you want may not be realized. For example, if you hope your stock will rise tomorrow, you are not claiming to know your stock will rise. You want your stock to rise but you recognize there's a possibility it may not. If you hope something happened, you're not claiming it did happen. When the faithful say, Jesus walked on water, they're not saying they hope Jesus walked on water, but rather are claiming Jesus actually did walk on water. All right, so faith is not the same as hope. Uh, because faith is a knowledge claim and hope is not a knowledge claim. I I think this is so interesting. Um, And and so the discussion I want to have about this, I mean, first of all, do we all agree with this distinction? Is this something that you've ever thought about before? I I don't think that I had really ever made this distinction, at least not as clearly until I heard Borgosian spell it out here. I, I... uh, Other questions to explore. How would you, as a believing Mormon, have responded to something like this? And how, how could this distinction possibly be helpful to you in future conversations with faithful friends and family members? Now, I, I remember very distinctly a gospel doctrine class that I was in, I was teaching, and I, you know, one, this, this was an issue for me. Um, and and I, I think it's a fairly common one in, you know, people's shelf-breaking and going through the faith crisis journeys, you start recognizing that people, especially in the church, use, I know, I know the church is true, I know the Book of Mormon is true, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, when it's really uh, faith, or I believe, or I hope. And and I was, I, I was talking about this in the Gospel Doctrine class. It was making people uncomfortable, um, you know, although I wasn't the only one in there, clearly, who had had these kinds of thoughts before, but it, it was creating some angst. <laughs> and and one guy who was a friend of mine, he said, you know, I, I, I just, I can't use the word hope, like to say instead of, I know the church is true, because I, I did like a thought experiment with them. I said, now, now how does it feel if, if I say, I know the church is true, or 
I have faith that the church is true, or I hope that the church is true. Do those three statements feel different to you? And it did. It felt different to everybody in the room. And and this guy said, yeah, I, I, I just can't say I hope the church is true because it's so wishy-washy. That was the word that he used, wishy-washy. And I'm like, yeah, but isn't it true? I mean, you hope that it is. You don't know that it is, but you have to. So I guess this kind of goes back to the pretending question. Um, anyway, interesting stuff in here. So that was clip number four. Um, now, now we're going to define uh, atheist in the next clip. And then the very last clip will be defining agnostic. And that'll be it for this episode. So let's go to the next clip. Atheist, as I use the term, means there's insufficient evidence to warrant belief in a divine, supernatural creator of the universe. However, if I were shown sufficient evidence to warrant belief in such an entity, then I'd believe. You know, I I really wish that in this section he would have defined belief, the, the way that he's defining faith, the way that he's defining atheist, because I, I, I appreciate this definition of atheist, but it, it also hinges on how you define belief, what you think it means to believe. And, and this is an area where I feel like I, I, I've had a lot of conversations lately. Um, you'll hear a few of them coming up in future episodes. You've probably heard. I, I mean, I, I don't really remember everything <laughs> that, we, that we've published in the past, um, especially recently. And so some of these, some of these things just uh, circle around and cycle around in my brain. But I, I've always had this question and thought that it would be an interesting approach to try to imagine the characteristics of a God that you could believe in. Like, okay, so you don't believe in the Mormon God because of X, Y, and Z. Well, what what factors would we need to have in order to believe in a God? And I, I had a conversation with Bill Reel. I might be publishing. I'm still not quite sure what I'm going to publish this this Sunday. Maybe it'll be the Bill Real discussion. I think I'm I think I'm kind of forcing myself right now to do the Bill Real. <laughs> I'm going to publish Bill Real on Sunday. Bill and I had this conversation about God. So what like what would what would God have to be or have to look like in order for you to believe in it? In order to accept in it? And I don't know if that's asking what evidence would you need to see in order to believe in it. Uh, it's, it's not really saying, so I, I don't know what believe is. I, I don't really know the distinction between exploring in my mind, thinking about or believing. And I took a graduate level course on belief. I, t- I took a class that was just about belief in my, uh, folklore studies, uh, years and years ago at Indiana university. And it was a cool class because there's a bunch of graduate students sitting around talking about belief, but I don't know that we came to any consensus on what it was. And, and of course, I was at a place in my life at the time where I was still one foot in, out, one foot in the church, one foot out of the church. But um, yeah, so what is, what is belief? What does it mean to believe? Um, because I think, it's a problem, I think it's a problem to say, oh, I'll only believe it if there's evidence, because then it's not really belief anymore, is it? Uh, you know, belief has to be some form of uh, hope or some kind of faith or, you know, I, yeah, I just don't know. So I'd like to have that discussion. What does it mean to believe? And um, to, to be an atheist, um, yeah, to, to have any kind of belief in God. I think it's it's much easier for me to reject certain characteristics that I see and go, no, that doesn't jive with me. I'm not comfortable with that, so I'm going to reject that characteristic of what you're defining as God or divine or intelligent design or whatever it might be. But there's other things that I'm open to. Um does that mean that I'm still able to carry around an atheist card? Do I even want to carry around an atheist card? Uh so this is this is the discussion that I want to have after this clip. And then here here's the last clip and then I'll talk about it. Um and it's defining agnostic. And spoiler alert, Peter Borgosian hates the word agnostic. He thinks it shouldn't be used at all. So shame on you, Tom, for for, for calling yourself an agnostic. 
Agnostics profess to not know whether there's an undetectable metaphysical entity that created the universe. Agnostics think there's not enough evidence to warrant belief in God, but because it's logically possible, they remain unsure of God's existence. Again, an agnostic is willing to revise her belief if provided sufficient evidence. The problem with agnosticism is that in the last 2,400 years of intellectual history, not a single argument for the existence of God has withstood scrutiny. Not one. Aquinas' five proofs fail. Pascal's wager fail. Anselm's ontological argument fail. The fine-tuning argument fail. The Kalam cosmological argument fail. All refuted, all failures. I dislike the terms agnostic and agnosticism. I advise street epistemologists to not use these terms. This is why. I don't believe Santa Claus is a real person who flies around in a sleigh led by reindeer delivering presents. I am a Santa Claus atheist. Even though there's nothing logically impossible about this phenomenon, I am not a Santa Claus agnostic. That is, a large man in a red suit delivering presents at the speed of light is not a logical contradiction. Agnostic and agnosticism are unnecessary terms. Street epistemologists should avoid them. All right, so uh, Borgosian, I'm just going to call him Pete. I like that better, Pete. So Pete doesn't like agnostic. Um, he defines it as, you know, there's not enough evidence to believe in God, but there's still a possibility. It's kind of like the Jim Carrey dumb and dumber. So you're saying there's a chance thing. So I'm not going to not believe in God because there's still a, a possibility. And he says, yeah, but the problem is that in the past 2,000 plus years, not a single argument for the existence of God has survived scrutiny. All right, first of all, Pete, it's pronounced scrutiny, not scrutiny. So now I just don't really know what to believe. I mean, you're going to mispronounce scrutiny? Scrutiny? Anyway, <laughs> that's just a delicious irony. Um, but... Who's scrutiny? I mean, look, if this claim is really true, then why is the belief in God still so incredibly pervasive? You, you, you have to get into the, well, it's just because people aren't careful enough. They're not smart enough. They're not reasonable enough. And that's when you're getting into that um, arena of arrogance and condescension that just makes me really uncomfortable. It's, it made me uncomfortable when I was in that space as a believing Mormon, and I thought, why doesn't the rest of the world see how stupid they are and how smart we are? I mean, it's, it's like flipping the script there, so I'm, I'm just not comfortable with that. And um, Okay, so he doesn't like the word agnostic. He doesn't want people to use the word agnostic. What do you think about that, Tom, others? What do you think about that? I don't care. I, I, you know, here's what I think. I, I think um, that what agnosticism really is is it's a it's a placeholder to put the uncertainty and say, you know what, I really don't know, and so I'm not going to make a judgment one way or the other. I'm going to stay open, and I absolutely respect that. And I think if if you're going to be an effective street epistemologist, you really do have to be RT, build relationships of trust. And to be able to show somebody that you are sincerely open to things that you don't understand, I think is a really important move to make. Um, so I'm going to disagree with Pete here about agnostic. And I really, really dislike the tired, worn out, Santa Claus false equivalency to God. I mean, come on. That's, it's, it's just, it's such a reductionist straw man that people keep going back to and back to and thinking that it's clever. And it's not. It isn't. Okay, fine. You're a, you're a Santa Claus atheist instead of agnostic. That's easy. We, we can look in the historical record to see the invention and the creation of Santa Claus, and it's when this very uh, narrowly defined context. But you can't do that when you're talking about God, and you're because you can't go back before the Big Bang. You can't go back before the first single-celled organism on this planet. You don't know 
what it is that organizes all of the complexities of life and evolution, whether there's intelligent design or not. If there's some kind of intelligence that doing it, is it a single God? Is it something else? To me, an agnostic holds space open for those possibilities um, instead of just saying, mm, nope, not, uh-uh, sorry, I've looked into, I've looked into a lot of gods and it's none of the ones that I've looked into. So until you show me one that is possible, I'm not even going to entertain the possibility that it could be true. I, that's, I feel strongly about that. Anyway, so this is the conversation that I'd like to have. I think it'll be a, a good, uh, episode, a good conversation. Again, I'm, I'm really just trying to create raw material that I can use for future episodes in exploring this topic. And we haven't even gotten to cultural relativism yet, um, but that's, that's coming up. And that's really, I mean, if you, if you go back and you remember, is it, is it Ben? I think Ben was the one who, who sent the email. If I got your name wrong, I'm sorry, Ben. Um, or whatever your name is. <laughs> I think it's bad. Uh, but uh, it, it was this question about relativism, cultural relativism. And um, you know what? Uh, I've got a couple of minutes. Here's what I'm going to do. Um, I had another email exchange, and I'll get his name right. Let me, let me go find that, and then I'll read that in. Hang on. All right. Yes, I was right. It is Ben. <laughs> sorry for saying I was sorry. I'm definitely not sorry for... I didn't get your name wrong. Okay. So um, yesterday, Ben sent me this email. Remember, I, I, uh, uh, I'll, I'll just go back to the first one that he said. Um, he, he said, uh, this was 10 days ago. Hey, infants, as I listen to recent episodes of your podcast, I get the impression that many of you have become relativists. This type of thinking seems, at least to me, to be voiced often lately, though I may just be reaching because this has been a topic often on my mind in the recent weeks. I've read A Manual for Creating Atheists by Peter Borgosian, in which he rips apart relativism, all right, rip it apart, and goes through how to teach people that relativism isn't a reliable way of processing the world. I'm currently reading The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, which so far feels like he believes relativism is a great mindset, though I haven't finished the book yet. I know Glenn loves this book. Yes, I do. And he probably has good insight into it. Well, I, hopefully it's getting better as I look into it more. But anyway, I think a podcast on relativism would be a fascinating discussion. Let me know if you've already released an episode on this and I just missed the boat. I would love to listen. Thanks, Ben. All right. And then I don't know if I read my response last time, but th- th- here's how I responded to Ben. I said, hi, Ben, this is Glenn. I know that relativism has come up in past discussions like the placebo effect series we did in 2014, but I don't think we've dedicated an entire episode to it. I'd like to hear more about what led you to this conclusion. Can you give me any specifics when, when you say that, uh, what you mean when you say relativism and what examples from past episodes made you think that many, and who exactly, of the infants have become, and what were we before? Relativists. <laughs> I was first exposed to relativism in graduate school, dra- uh, graduate school and swung too far, I think, in that direction for a while, and then swung back, I think, away from it. And now I'm probably more in the middle, or at least whatever position it is where I'm convinced that the hardline atheist attack against relativism is sorely misinformed as to the nature of human experience. They live in a world of should, based on philosophical reasoning, rather than a world of is, which has dimensions of experience that they reject and simply do not acknowledge as valid because it has no place in their utopian should world. Anyway, I'll check out the Borgosian book. I'll probably hate it. (laughs) And, and just on that note, I don't, by the way, I've, I've read further and uh, you know, I, I don't hate it at all. I think it's a really good book and really valuable. Um, and that could make for a good episode. Here's the link to the placebo effect episode we do. And in closing, what do you think about the classic question? If a tree falls in the middle of the forest and no one is around to hear it, does it make a sound? What do you think about that from the perspective of relativism? Best, Glenn. Okay. So, and then this was uh, his email to me yesterday, and then I'll read that and my response back to him. And then that'll do it for today's sharing time. Um, So he says, hey, Glenn, sorry for not getting back sooner. I had some family stuff I had to deal with, um, and I listened to the placebo effect. Uh, The discussion does touch on relativism, but it seems like a mere mention. And without going back and listening to some recent episodes to find examples, I don't know that I can quote 
For sure, where I see infants leaning towards relativism, I guess it's just a feeling that I can bear testimony to. Winky face. (laughs) I think an episode on relativism would not only be fascinating, but is extremely important. From my perspective, it seems... See, why are you saying from my perspective, Berg? That's a very relativist thing to say. From my perspective... Relative to my perspective, it seems that most people, including myself, do not fully understand relativism. I, I would lump myself in there too, Ben. I mean, I don't, I don't totally claim to understand it either. Um, so I, I welcome the opportunity to learn about it better. Uh, I also think it is disliked as it seems to take away any call for action or restitution. This is a very uh, right up Tom's alley here when it comes to justice, right? Um, for example, if you asked if a tree falls in the middle of the forest and no one is around to hear it, does it make a sound? In my probably faulty perspective of relativism, I would simply say it doesn't matter if it made a sound or not. I still feel like I think most people do that a perspective of relativism takes away any incentive to work towards that utopian world, whether it is achievable or not. Um, I'll, I'll get to this in my response to him, but I don't think that was the right answer to the tree falling. (laughs) Does it make a sound or not? I don't think a relativist would say it doesn't matter. Um, Anyway, uh, all of that is not to say that I do not like relativism or find truth in it. These are simply my thoughts as I'm trying to understand it and process it. Oh, I can so relate to that, Ben, and, and respect it. You know, it's this idea of exploring, like trying to understand it better. I'm with you. I heard on your recent podcast that you'll be smacking down a manual for creating atheists on Patreon. I'm excited to listen to it. I lived by this book after leaving the church. I've read it four or five times as I've prepared myself to rid the world of religion. (laughs) I've come a long way since then and learned a few lessons about life and relativism. Uh, Anyway, cool. Um, And then my response to Ben, thanks. Uh, How are you defining relativism? If you say is this true or not? And I say, well, it depends on X, Y, or Z, and also A, B, and C, and whether or not one, two, and three is either red, yellow, or blue, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I'm saying it depends on all these complicating factors. Does that make me a relativist? Is the problem or frustration with relativism that it doesn't provide a simple yes or no answer to truth claims? For example, if you asked, is the Book of Mormon true? And I said, it depends on what you mean by true, is that a kind of relativism that you would bristle at? The reason that I asked the if a tree falls question is this. Sound is what we call the natural phenomenon of sound waves hitting an eardrum, and most specifically a human eardrum, and then sending electronic signals to our brain. That entire process is represented by the simple single word sound. So in that sense, the existence of sound is relative to the proximity of sound waves and human eardrums. So if a tree falls creating sound waves and there is no eardrum in the sound waves or for the sound waves to hit against, you technically do not have sound, you just have sound waves. It's annoyingly precise and pedantic, right? To me, that illustrates the principle of relativism, or at least the way that I think I understand it. Or in other words, the importance of understanding the importance of the relationships between things, which is what I think relativism is. Often multiple, subtle, not very obvious, but still significantly influential things that we often gloss over and take shortcuts to make quick yes or no judgments about, in large part as a way of avoiding being annoyingly precise and pedantic. In other words, we take a complex process, and we force a simplistic black or white, either or answer onto it. I haven't yet read Peter Borgosian's dissection of relativism, but I will soon. I think it is more specifically cultural relativism that he will attack, where unlike the tree example, where sound waves and their proximity to and impact upon eardrums can be empirically measured, The complicated, nuanced, relative influencers in cultural relativism are ephemeral elements, like custom, tradition, thoughts, beliefs, social interactions, etc., etc., specifically regarding ethics and morality. So what I'm saying here is that they're ephemeral. They're they're not empirical. It's it's difficult to quantify them. Um, So this is where a Jonathan Haidt 
provides so much value to me in helping me glimpse the many complex, subtle, relative influencers that form our moral framework. So I'll be interested to see what Borgosian says about relativism in relation to how I understand that moral framework. I suspect it'll be somewhat conveniently strawmanish that he will use plenty examples of very sloppy and illogical reasoning, I put in quotes, of faithful people saying empirically, demonstrably false things as a way of exposing the flaws of culturally relativist thinking and thereby coming to the conclusion, see, relativism bad. But here's how I think, and, and all I'm doing there is exposing my biases, right? Like, this is, this is what I think I'm going to see. We'll see if I see that or not. But here's how I think about it, at least currently, that not all relativist arguments are equal. Not all relativist conclusions are valid. But that means that some are. And you can't just shit on all of cultural relativism as having zero impact or zero validity or zero influence on the world or on truth or the human perceptions of truth just because some cultural relativism, and maybe even most of it, gets things wrong. It's too simple, but I'll understand better after reading Borgosian. So, after reading Borgosian. So, anyway, um, that is... uh, what we'll be talking about, um, the, the clips defining faith and deepities and atheist and agnostic, a little bit of hope in there, that'll be the conversation that we have on Sunday night. Um, and then we're working towards this uh, discussion on relativism that I hope will be really interesting and uh, that I'll learn more about and uh, appreciate your support. Uh, not only what you donate to the podcast in money that uh, helps me pay the bills and <laughs> you know helps helps supplement my income so that I can spend more time doing this, but also these contributions like this email from Ben and from from so many others who point me in different directions that I'm interested in that you're interested in, and we can explore these things together. So thanks again for supporting Infants on Thrones and. I'll talk with you later. 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 Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Infants on Thrones. All right. And, and what the hell? As an extended Easter egg, I'll include uh, last week's set of clips that preceded this week's set of clips. So I'm kind of Benjamin Bunting. What? what? The traveling back in time, Brad. It, anyway, it doesn't matter. Here's some more clips. Another Patreon-only feature from last week. Welcome back to Infant Nursery Hour with your host, Glenn Ostland. It's sharing time. Hey there, Patreon supporters. Um, I I don't know. I think this is going to be some good news. I I hope that you like it. I hope that you like what I'm going to be saying to you here today. So... uh, Got an email earlier this week. You're going to hear it in a minute. Um, I read it into this clip that I'm going to, this extended clip of clips that I'm going to be playing for you. Um, but, but basically what uh, this listener was saying was it sounds like the infants have all become cultural relativists. Um, what's up? Uh, I just read this book called a, what is it called? It's called A Manual for Creating Atheists. And, um, anyway, so he was, he was saying, uh, and, and in that book, the author attacks cultural relativism. And so he wants to hear us talk about cultural relativism. And I know it's come up in the podcast before. I think, I think if my memory serves the times where we talked most about it, were on those episodes with Chelsea, uh, years ago, the placebo episodes. But, um, anyway, so I thought, let's do it. So I went and I got the audiobook and started listening to it, and I had my own reaction, which uh, I'll let you guess how I, <laughs> I respond to this sort of thing. Um, but what we're going to start doing for Infants on Thrones, we're going to do a series, a multi-part series, maybe five parts. I don't know. It's hard to say going into it how many parts it's actually going to be. But it'll, it'll be kind of like what we did with um, the uh, Seven Deadly Heresies Smackdown, except hopefully... It won't take as long to record and com- complete. We're going to set aside every Sunday night, starting this upcoming Sunday. 
which is what today's the 15th of August, so that's August uh, 19th. So every every Sunday night, 10 p.m. Eastern, uh, we're going to be doing uh, live recordings, uh, and you're invited to sit in and listen if you'd like to. You're also invited to contribute, maybe not as we're doing it live, although uh, depending on how many actually join, we might be able to do something like that. But what I'm going to play for you right now, this clip of clips, is what I'm sending to the the panelists. Um, and, and right now we've got uh, Tom and Randy, and Matt is a maybe. Heather, Jake, and Bob aren't able to make it this time. They might another time. I still haven't heard one way or the other from John or Scott, but I, I don't expect that either of them will join. But uh, Delaney Darko, uh, who was a listener essay winner from a few months ago, she's going to join us as well. And uh, so these clips I'm sending to them, uh, we're going to be responding to it. It's going to provide us a structure for our conversation because obviously we're not going to be doing it um, completely SmackDown style where we read every single word of the document. I'm just pulling out these clips. So you get to hear them early. And I'll, I'll do this for you each week that we're doing this series. Um, I, th- I think you'll find it interesting. I don't know. I find it interesting. And... Um, Again, if you want to contribute, um, if if you have things that you want to say about any of these clips, you can send, you know, you can write a comment on Patreon. Uh, you could even record something and email us the audio file, and maybe I would insert that into uh, the final episode. Maybe I would read your comment into the final episode, that sort of thing. Um, but anyway, uh, just as a, a way of providing extra value and uh, content for you as Patreon supporters, we're going to do this. So anything else I need to say about it? I don't think so. I'll put the, uh, the, the link to join us. We, we use a program called Zoom, which is kind of like Skype. Um, that's how we record. And uh, I'll put the Zoom link here on Patreon in the in the comments or maybe even in the main body of of this episode which is sharing time number 13 i think and um so if you just click on that at 10 p.m eastern on sunday uh you can listen in live uh to the series i guess the the only other thing to say about it there, there was another um listener uh, i think he's joined patreon now jason who a few months ago suggested that we do something like, um, uh, you know, the missionary discussions. What, what would missionary discussions be like for um, believers if, if you were trying to either convert someone from being a believer to a non-believer or just help them understand why you're a non-believer? And it seemed like such a daunting task to, to construct something like that. I think, I think this series is going to scratch that itch because this book really appears to be a, d- designed with that in mind. It's, it's very like overzealous, a manual to create atheists, a way of disabusing people of their faith and superstitions and just plain old stupidity. And now my biases are kind of coming out because I think it takes it too far. But anyway, um, you'll hear that even in these clips in the way that I've, I've added sound effects and music to these clips. So uh, hope you enjoy this. Hope you join us on Sunday. And again, thank you for supporting us on Patreon. And take care for now. Hey, infants. As I listen to recent episodes of your podcast, I get the impression that many of you have become relativists. This type of thinking seems, at least to me, to be voiced often lately, though I may just be reaching because this has been a topic often on my mind in the recent weeks. I've read A Manual for Creating Atheists by Peter Bogosian in which he rips apart relativism and goes through how to teach people that relativism is not a reliable way of processing the world. I'm currently reading The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, which so far feels like he believes relativism is a great mindset, though I haven't finished the book yet. I know Glenn loves this book, and he probably has good insight to this. I think a podcast on relativism would be a fascinating discussion, 
Let me know if you already released an episode on this and I just missed the boat. I would love to listen. Thanks, Ben. A Manual for Creating Atheists Written by Peter Bogosian Never be a spectator of unfairness or stupidity. The grave will supply plenty of time for silence. Christopher Hitchens Forward, Born Again Atheist by Michael Shermer For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Everlasting life? Wow, that's quite a claim. And as we skeptics like to say, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Is there extraordinary evidence for the claim that accepting Jesus of Nazareth bestows upon the believer eternity? No. Is there even any ordinary evidence for this extraordinary claim? No. There is no evidence whatsoever. As to date, not one person who has died has returned to report a celestial realm where a first-century carpenter resides with his father, God. Let's think this claim through as a person of reason and science might. 1. Christians claim that God is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, and omnibenevolent, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, and all-good, the creator of the universe and everything in it, including us. 2. Christians believe that we were originally created sinless, but because God gave us free will, and Adam and Eve chose to eat the forbidden fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, we are all born with original sin as part of our nature, even though we did not commit the original sinful act ourselves. 3. God could just forgive the sin we never committed, but instead he sacrificed his son, Jesus, who is actually just himself in the flesh, because Christians believe in only one God, that's what monotheism means, of which Jesus and the Holy Spirit are just different manifestations, three in one and one in three. Four, the only way to avoid eternal punishment for sins we never committed from this all-loving God is to accept his Son, who is actually himself, as our Savior. So, God sacrificed himself to himself to save us from himself. Barking mad! This all sounds positively daft, but when you're in the religious bubble, everything makes sense and there is no such thing as chance, randomness, and contingencies. Things happen for a reason, and God has a plan for each and every one of us. When something good happens, God is rewarding us for our faith, our good works, or our love of Christ. When something bad happens, well, God does work in mysterious ways, you know. Inside the bubble, the explanatory filter works at every level, from the sublime to the ridiculous, from career opportunities to parking spots. I thanked God for everything from getting me into the Christian-based Pepperdine University, my grades and SAT scores were unspectacular, to finding a parking place at theaters and restaurants. In the Christian worldview, there is a place for everything, and everything is in its place. And believe it or not, when you're committed to that belief system, it is internally consistent and logically coherent. As long as you don't look too closely, and you are surrounded by others who are also in the bubble. Had I read this book when I was a neophyte Bible thumper, I would have saved scores of people from my incessant door-to-door evangelizing and spared my patient and loving family members, who were surely at wit's end with me, endless mini-sermons about Jesus and the good book that carried his gospel. If I started reading A Manual for Creating Atheists as a Christian, I would have been an atheist by the time I finished it. Peter Boghossian's A Manual for Creating Atheists is the perfect companion to Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion. They should be bundled like an atheist software package to reprogram minds into employing reason instead of faith, science instead of superstition. Religion is still a powerful force in the world, and the majority of humans still adhere to one faith or another, but which is the right one? But this is changing thanks to rational thinkers and brave activists such as Peter Boghossian, who has helped lead the fastest-growing religious movement in America called the Nuns, 
those who check the box for none when asked about their religious faith. We are the nuns, and we are growing. And in the long run, we will triumph, because we have on our side reason and science, the best tools ever devised for understanding the world. Chapter 1. Street Epistemology Street. Noun. A public thoroughfare. Epistemology. Noun. The study of knowledge. This book will teach you how to talk people out of their faith. You'll learn how to engage the faithful in conversations that help them value reason and rationality, cast doubt on their beliefs, and mistrust their faith. I call this activist approach to helping people overcome their faith street epistemology. The goal of this book is to create a generation of street epistemologists, people equipped with an array of dialectical and clinical tools who actively go into the streets, the prisons, the bars, the churches, the schools, and the community, into any and every place the faith will reside, and help them abandon their faith and in reason. Street epistemology harkens back to the values of the ancient philosophers, individuals who are tough-minded, plain-speaking, known for self-defense, committed to truth, unyielding in the face of danger, and fearless in calling out falsehoods, contradictions, inconsistencies, and nonsense. Plato was a wrestler and a soldier with broad shoulders. He was decorated for bravery in battle. Socrates was a seasoned soldier. Street epistemology is a vision and a strategy for the next generation of atheists, skeptics, humanists, philosophers, and activists. Left behind is the idealized vision of wimpy, effete philosophers, older men in jackets with elbow patches, smoking pipes, stroking their white, unkempt beards. Gone is cowering to ideology, orthodoxy, and the modern threat of political correctness. Enter the street epistemologist, an articulate, clear, helpful voice with an unremitting desire to help people overcome their faith and to create a better world. A world that uses intelligence, reason, rationality, thoughtfulness, ingenuity, sincerity, science, and kindness to build the future. Not a world built on faith, delusion, pretending, religion, fear, pseudoscience, superstition, or a certainty achieved by keeping people in a stupor that makes them pawns of unseen forces because they're terrified. The street epistemologist is a philosopher and a fighter. The street epistemologist is a philosopher and a fighter. She has savvy and street smarts that come from the school of hard knocks. She relentlessly helps others by tearing down falsehoods about whatever enshrined truths enslave us. But the street epistemologist doesn't just tear down fairy tales, comforting delusions, and imagined entities. She offers a humanistic vision. Let's be blunt, direct, and honest with ourselves and with others. Let's help people develop a trustfulness of reason and a willingness to reconsider. And let's place rationality in the service of humanity. Street epistemology offers a humanism that's taken some hits and gained from experience. This isn't Pollyanna humanism, but a humanism that's been slapped around and won't fall apart. A manual for creating atheists offers practical solutions to the problem of faith and religion through the creation of street epistemologists. Legions of people who view interactions with the faithful as clinical interventions designed to disabuse them of their faith. Hitchens may be gone, but no single individual will take his place. Instead of a replacement horseman, there are millions of horsemen ushering in a new enlightenment and an age of reason. You, the reader, will be one of these horsemen. You will become a street epistemologist. <laughs>
You will transform a broken world long ruled by unquestioned faith into a society built on reason, evidence, and thought-out positions. This is work that needs to be done and work that will pay off by potentially helping millions, even billions of people to live in a better world, to live in a better world, to live in a better wow, world. Wow, that's quite a claim. A and as we skeptics like to say, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Infants on Thrones.